disruption zone. Opportunity lives where the status quo dies. Talking to the greatest innovators, disruptors, and off-the-wall inventors, we can scrounge up. You laugh, you'll learn, you'll be inspired. Now, here are your hosts, Leland Conway and Cameron Mills. It's the disruption zone. Crazy stuff going on in the world right now. They're canceling Dr. Seuss. Republicans are trying to raise your gas taxes. And we need more dignity for incarcerated women. We're going to talk about all three of these topics with one of my favorite regular guests on the podcast, Josh Crawford from the Pegasus Institute. Before we do, though, big thank you to the uh, to uh, Louisville Cabinets and Countertops. As you guys know, two things. Number one, I don't talk about businesses I don't believe in. And I believe in Louisville Cabinets and Countertops. We were a customer for years while we lived in Louisville. They did a couple of jobs for us, the uh, uh, master bathroom and our kitchen. And I'm confident that our house sold in less than a day because partially because of the work that they had done in the kitchen to make it so beautiful. The other thing that you know is very important to me is work ethic. And I've seen firsthand the work ethic of Tim Montgomery and his crews. And um, they just are going to blow you away. They have great designers on staff. Kelly, Michelle, George, they're standing by at 6200 Hit Lane to help you choose the right uh, design for your home and for your lifestyle. And that is why you're, you can't go wrong checking in with Louisville Cabinets and Countertops. Go to LouisvilleCabinetsAndCountertops.com. If you're a do-it-yourselfer or a contractor, they have high-quality, beautiful cabinets in stock ready to go. If you want a turnkey kitchen remodel, that's tearing walls down, doing the whole kit and caboodle, Call them, 502-930-3304. And I also hope you'll call them and just say thank you for supporting the Disruption Zone. Tell them how much you love the podcast and how much you appreciate them supporting the podcast. Um, 502-930-3304. Even if you're not ready to do your kitchen yet, just let them know that they're on your radar uh, and you'll take a look at them when that time comes. But just thank them for supporting the podcast. It's 502-930-3304. That would mean a lot to me. All right, let's get to our conversation with Josh Crawford from the Pegasus Institute. Josh Crawford, how are you, sir? It's good to have you back on the uh, the uh, podcast here. How are you doing? Well, thanks for having me back, Leland. I'm doing all right. Um, unfortunately, my wife's baby shower was two weeks ago, and now i got to figure out how I'm going to burn all these Dr. Seuss books. <laughs> um, my backyard is is too wet for a bonfire right now oh because of all God. the rain we've had. So I got to figure out how, how I'm going to get rid of all these, but otherwise things are good. Yeah. I'm just glad the cat in the hat is safe for now, but, uh, for now. And, and what was yeah. it? You know, it's, it's, it's so funny. I actually, I was talking about this yesterday in my uh, commentary on WGTK there in Louisville. And look, if you look into Dr. Seuss's past, you'll find some unsavory things as you will do, for practically anyone in previous generations. I mean, that that was the whole point of the Enlightenment, wasn't it? That we would wake up, that we would find our logic, that we would progress, that we would take the good things from the current generation and in with us to the next generation and eliminate the bad things and grow as human beings. And, and I just find this movement right now to cancel everything in the past. It's it's two things. Um, number one, it's, it's silly and stupid. But... And it, 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 in erasing that history, we can't learn from it. And the other thing it is is arrogant. It is it is this sort of self-centered mentality that we now are perfect and everyone before us was unacceptable. And it's going to lead right. to, you know, it's essentially, you know, the de facto friendly fascism version of banning of books, you know? Right. Yeah, it's if you if you play with the fire of cancel culture, you will eventually get burned, right? Yeah, if yeah. if everything that came before you is now offensive and must be gotten rid of, there will be a time where what you believe is offensive and needs to be gotten rid of. Yeah. So, it's uh, this time period makes an excellent case for hard copies of things. Yeah. Um. Yeah. You know. So make get your hard copies of your books, get your hard copies of the movies you like because. In the digital age, they can erase it all in a, in a matter of seconds. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think um, one of the key tenets of moving towards a sort of statist ideology, and we can call it communism, we can call it socialism, but we can, you know, those are both different branches of the same statist tree. Um, and, and even sometimes the right can go in that direction as well. But 
you know, when we when we look to a, a government that is all powerful and all consuming and all managing of our lives, um, one of the key tools to achieving that is to erase the past so that people don't have anything to build on, that all truth is only what the government says right now or what the prevailing mentality says right now. And um, the idea of distorting language, um, the idea of distorting truth and undermining truth is what leads to this sort of confusion. And I've actually heard, and you may have better history grasp of this than me, but I've, I've, there are similarities, are there not, to the fall of the Roman Empire, to the way that our society is sort of playing out right now. And it's this sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs where we've reached the top of it and now we've actualized ourselves and now we're just going around actualizing everyone else. And that's when you make up your own problems, right? You create problems to fight that don't really exist, and then society collapses because there's no true, real challenge and collective culture of the society. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, there have been people making that comparison for the better part of the last decade or so, uh, some really persuasively, others less so. But one of the things that I think is is super important about that comparison and is really telling in the time period that we're living in, there's a lot of us on the right who um, overemphasize government in terms of, uh, government can't do this. Government can do that. Those kinds of questions. But what we're seeing right now is how much culture matters. Mm, And because, uh, the government didn't tell Coca-Cola to do a seminar on how to be less white. The government didn't tell the Dr. Seuss publisher to get rid of those six books. Uh, the culture has dictated those things, uh, quicker than the government could ever hope to. And so uh, I think it's important for conservatives, libertarians, folks sort of center right and and frankly, even center left uh, to to wake up to this idea that culture matters and uh, that these conversations uh, don't just happen in the halls of Congress or in executive agencies, but in newspaper rooms and Hollywood and and all these other places. What drives the mentality that there is no such thing as racism against being white. Um, I, I don't understand what drives that mentality. I've heard explanations of, well, colonialism is a uniquely bad problem and it's there's the accusation that it's uniquely European in nature, but that's not true. Um, if you go back to Native American cultures, there were versions of colonialism that happened throughout then. Uh, there were tribes that enslaved other tribes. If you go b- pretty much deep enough into any human society and culture in the past, you found those kinds of um, bigotry, those kinds of racism, those kinds of race-driven conflicts in practically every society that's ever existed. What is different is that, you know, at some point— um, this idea of the enlightenment, this idea of, of, you know, freedom of thought and freedom of mind and, and freedom of individuality and equality of man was able to arise from, you know, the idea of self-government. And, and yet there's this mentality that only white people can be racist. And that doesn't make any sense to me because, well, it just, it's not true. It's simply not true. Right. Well, well, we're talking happened, about the Coca-Cola thing is kind of what I was getting right. at. I was like, that was over. I, I, that was overtly yeah. racist against white people. It's like, you know, it's not that we need to be, try to be less of who and what we are. It's that we need to be inclusive of it. The idea of being inclusive is a great idea. The idea of being inclusive right. and learning of other cultures and bringing people in and creating that melting pot. That's a wonderful idea. It is a very bad idea to say that one particular culture or one particular race is not allowed to be what that group is that doesn't make any sense right right well it is and it isn't racist and it isn't racist because telling people to be less white is the whitest thing i can think of (laughs) Uh, it's 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 only white people that's true things like that that's true um and and that was true of the organizers of that event and and so on but the the actual heart of your question comes to this unholy marriage of postmodernism and identity politics. And right. it happened in the academy in some some academic departments, and it's made its way out and infiltrated popular culture uh, in a way that I think a lot of people would not have been able to predict. But that sort of unholy alliance 
is the identity politics impulse that uh, our differences in appearance or differences in beliefs uh, and our groupings are what matter and the postmodern understanding that all that matters is power. Right. Right. And so because sort of white Western culture is the dominant culture in the United States and Western Europe, then you cannot be prejudiced, racist, whatever against people who fall into the group that is in power. All that matters is the reallocation of power away from those people. Right. And so uh, you can't be prejudiced against a dominant group because the only way to truly exercise prejudice is to impose your power on someone else. And because uh, African-Americans and women uh, and, and uh, LGBTQ folks and, and so on are not in those power positions, they cannot uh, exhibit uh, racist tendencies or, or prejudice tendencies is what that theory believes. Right. And the problem is, is the way that that theory has manifested itself in culture and in corporate boardrooms and all these kinds of things is to play on people's best instincts, right? To right. say, look, you, you think prejudice is wrong. Um, you want a less racist world. You want a world where people are treated more equally uh, and are more free. And if that's what you want, this is how you do it. Right. And so the the reason it's kind of spread like wildfire, at least I believe, and, and I think others believe as well, is that it, it preys on those on those best instincts of people. Fully agree. And I think you you've kind of nailed the essence of the ideological um, conflict here. So because a lot of people really do, you know, when you see kind of bringing this conversation full circle, when you see the banning of Dr. Seuss, you shake your head and go, I don't understand, right? I don't understand. And you're not going to understand unless you recognize that this really, the, the whole idea of cancel culture really isn't about race. I mean, it is right. for some people, but that's really the people that aren't quite aware of what's going on, right? The, right. the real idea behind cancel culture is the idea of, or, or, or the real conflict here is individualism versus groupism. And right. to your point, there is a line of thinking that the only way to achieve utopia is for people to lay down their individual self and turn it over to the collective self. That is, right. that is a very stark difference in thinking from the individualist idea that I am responsible for my own actions, I am responsible for my own destiny, I am responsible for my own self-interests, and then, of course, by extension, I am responsible for my community's self-interest, um, my society's self-interest, those kinds of things. And it's this idea of individualism versus collectivism. So ultimately, you have this you have two groups of I'll just for lack of better word, idiots being played against each other. Right. It's it's on right. the right side, people who can't think far enough into realizing what is the exact nature of this conflict. If you just simply throw your hands up and say, that's stupid, that's just a bunch of college kids. You have to understand that the ideology behind it is much more insidious than that, and you got to dig a little right. deeper. On the other side, you have people that are buying into the group politics thing, thinking they're doing the right thing, as you said, because they, in their hearts, have altruistic notions. We must achieve right. equality. That's all great, but they're being used by a more sinister idea which is to push that collectivism because collectivism is ultimately the concentration of that power you talked about. Long right. explanation, but I think you I, I, it's me saying you nailed it, but I mean just trying to help people think that through. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the problem with all these critical theories and postmodernism. Mm -hmm. Uh your there is no individual, but there also is no universal humanity. Right. 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 And so um your individual wants, needs, desires, experiences actually don't matter. But there's also no universal understanding of what human rights are. There's only group identity right. and the power gained or lost by group identity. Is that is that why there is a tendency to have moral uh, moral subjectivism within that thought process where my end of, you know, there was actually a this is a funny story and it may not seem related to this, but in a way it is. There was a study done some years ago that people who buy into the um uh, global warming carbon footprint think uh, process have um, a sort of a moral bank 
that they feel like they have contributed enormous to. And they actually went and studied these people, and they're like, okay, they drive a Prius. Therefore, if they ding your car door, they have enough moral bank uh, set aside that they don't have to stop and leave a card that says, hey, I dinged your car door, right? There's like a moral superiority to them that they feel like they've done enough for the collective good that their personal moral misgivings can now be overlooked. Um, it's kind of that same thought process when you look at that whole collectivism where we destroy the idea of an individual right and wrong and we, you know, it's violence is okay when it's used to collect power. You know, violence is okay when it's used to advance this particular political agenda or, um, you know, destroying the family unit is okay um, because really what we're doing is we're standing up for people who don't have uh, secure family units and so on and so forth. It's like this sort of moral relativism that develops within that thought process. Does that make sense? Do you think that that's part of what drives that? Yeah, I, I think if there is a quintessentially American understanding of religion, uh, and, and by that I don't mean any specific religion, but sort of spirituality, it is this idea of your good deeds are weighed against your bad deeds, and as long as your good deeds are than your bad deeds you're okay for for sort of like whatever you think is next right um which is problematic uh for those of us that self-identify as christians for those who self-identify as as jews or muslims or whatever um but if there's sort of like a, a a strain that runs through a lot of the american experience on is that person a good person the fundamental question is do they do more good than they do bad right and so i think that there's a lot of sort of moral superiority that comes with uh, the belief that you are saving the planet or um, ending systematic racism or any of these sort of like super lofty goals that are put in catastrophic terms. Right. And, and when that's the case, right, the ends justify the means. Right. Um, Machiavellian. The, the, the civil war is a, a bloody, terrible, awful, you know, brother against brother, you would never want it to happen. But on the other side of it, um, the institution of slavery, which is probably the ugliest thing in American history, is gone. Right. And so you say, okay, we fought this really bloody, awful war, but on the other side of it, uh, we came, we came out clean, kind right. of thing. Right. Um, Better. There's a lot of that grandstanding on social issues and and, and uh, frankly a bunch of issues in our politics today and i think there's a lot of reasons for that i think social media contributes to that uh because of the performative nature of social media right but um i think that that there's a lot of that and so i do think there's a lot of ends justifying the means well social media gave us the ability to virtue signal um right and virtue signaling gives us the ability to cover up our other um frailties so to speak you know i i am a flawed person but look at how i just virtue signaled to you that i am following all the tenets of the current culture and kind of going back to culture i know we didn't mean to get into a big deep conversation about this but i but (laughs) hey go with the flow dr susio um (laughs) right but but you know the idea of culture when we come back to like a society and this this kind of probably is some of the undermining conservative thought tenets we're not saying that everybody has to be homogenous and agree. In fact, the the contrary, if you celebrate individualism, you don't want homogeneity, whatever the word is. I can't use big words. Homogeneity. Homogeneity. You don't want everybody to think exactly the same. But there does have to be, in order for freedom, in order for liberty, in order for self-government to work, there has to be at least a loosely agreed upon bonding idea that the entire culture... Um, sort of buys into by choice in order for the society to move along. Uh, You know, a perfect example of that is let's talk about immigration for a second. Um, America is great because we're a nation of immigrants. I mean, the whole idea of the country was to flee to some uh, greater place where there was more freedom, right? The whole, the whole idea of America is founded. It's, it's completely generated in the idea of immigration. That being said, there, there is, there should be an expectation to say if you're going to continue, you know, if you're going to come here, there's a buy-in that we would expect you to have. It doesn't mean you have to give up your home culture. It doesn't mean you have to give up 
your your personal political beliefs or your personal religious beliefs, but it does mean you have to buy into this sort of central framework of how society works. That's recognizing the rights of man. That sort of central framework that establishes a basic general morality has to happen in order for society to continue, in order for self-government to exist. Yeah, I mean, and that's what made American immigration different from so much of other European immigration. Um, I have friends who um, moved over to France, and they'll tell you that it doesn't matter how long they're there. It doesn't matter how much they acclimate to the culture. They'll never be seen as French. Right. Right. They'll they'll be seen as Americans who live in France. And that's true of Britons who moved to France or Spaniards who moved to France in America. It was um, when you emigrate here, you can you can keep the identity that you bring with you. But we want you to become Americans. Right. right and right. for a long period of our history, it was remarkably imperfect. Right. We didn't exactly open our arms to the Italians. We didn't exactly open our arms to the Irish. Right. Um, the Chinese immigrants, Cuban immigrants, Puerto Rican immigrants, Japanese and, immigrants, and so on, World War II. Yeah. Right. 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 And and so it, it's been an imperfect practice, especially from a government policy standpoint. But the prevailing culture was you work hard, you become American. Uh, that doesn't mean you have to to abandon who you were or where you came from. It's why you have sayings like Italian American or right. Irish American, right. right? That's that's a uniquely American um Yeah, there's there's, there's no there's things. no Kenyan British. There's no Correct. American French. You know, there's right. there, it, there there there's no there's no French German. There, in right. those in those countries there's no adoption of that. It's a recognition of your culture is great, it's fine, it's accepted here. But hey, you're also an American, and by that right. we we wish you well, and 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 you're you're part of us and part of our family, recognizing your individuality and uniqueness. Yeah, right. Fully agree with that. Um, right. I, I think, but it, you know, just it, that that I think that's the big ideological battle, and I think we spend a lot of we waste a lot of uh, ideological capital on this sort of red versus blue conflict which to me is so unnuanced and so generalized and so idiotic and so um shallow you know what i mean i mean it's it's mm -hmm. to, to to be like well you voted for joe biden so therefore you're a socialist i can't associate with you i lost a right. good friend uh who was liberal and um you know just completely cut off all contact with me uh, as a result of the last election uh, there was yep. no uh, allowing for the nuance for why someone would vote their own personal interests when it comes to their pocketbook or freedoms or the Second Amendment or whatever. It was just cut off. We are no longer friends, you know. And right. to me, that is a very baseless, unintelligent, silly way to conduct, you know, society. And yet our institutions right now that used to be what held our leaders accountable are now holding us accountable to that standard. In other words, the media, right. big technology, they're holding us accountable to that nasty standard of red versus blue. Do not step outside those bounds or else. And we're, we're actually right. being held to that by the media and by big tech right now. Yeah, it's also a remarkably uninteresting mm -hmm. and unworthwhile way to, to look at the world, right? I use this comparison all the time. AOC's district in the South Bronx... Hal Rogers district in Eastern Kentucky. AOC's district is majority minority. Hal Rogers district, majority white. Uh, AOC's district votes overwhelmingly Democrat in elections. Hal Rogers district votes overwhelmingly Republican in elections. Um, Hal Rogers district, very rural. Uh, AOC's district, very urban. But the experiences of the folks that live in those two places in this country that for all the boring ways that we talk about life are as opposite as possible. Experience similar levels of poverty, experience similar levels of violent crime, similar levels of addiction, similar levels of things like out of wedlock childbirth, uh, similar levels, similar, similarly low levels of academic achievement. And so why aren't we talking about how we can do things that help the people in AOC's district and help the people in Hal Rogers district. Right. Because turns out those people are a lot more alike 
than they are from the people who live much closer to AOC's district right. uh, on Manhattan, yeah. or uh, frankly, even much closer to Hal Rogers' district in uh, the East End of Louisville. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I grew up in a culture that I guess you could say wasn't my own, uh, but I but that experience for me led me to a couple of different conclusions. One, I love other cultures and want to learn about them because I'm fascinated by the way people um, interact, always have been. Um, the other thing it taught me was that no matter how different we think we are, we're actually really pretty similar. You know, um, my friends and I used to joke, you know, they called me a hillbilly and we used to joke at who could uh, who could put more people in the back of a pickup truck, people from Kentucky or people from the res. Right. And it was this laughingly recognizing that we were really the same. Um, going back to that thing about experiences, what we found fun was laughter, was joy, was, 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 you know, community. We found value in those things. And it's like, that's the same. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what color your skin is, what your economic status is. We all find, you know, sort of a purpose in, in having that joy in that community and, 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 you know, our food tastes different, but ranchero beans are basically just soup beans with spice. You know what I mean? I mean, there's really not that much <laughs> right. difference, you know? Right. Um, right. So I, I don't know. I'm fascinated by that. I, I don't know really how to solve this problem, Josh. You and I have talked about this probably many times. It's almost like we gravitate to this, I think, because we both think about things from a solution standpoint and we recognize some of the problems society is facing right now. But but the 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 answer is elusive because big tech and the media are so intimately involved in orchestrating how people think on a daily basis. I don't really know how to to pierce those those bonds because there's very powerful forces that profit from us being divided. And those forces are probably both sides of the aisle. Um, but but there's very powerful forces that don't want us to, to to weed through this stuff to the nuance. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think so long as the edges of the spectrum are amplified, it will be more difficult for folks to come together. But the right. reality is to, to the point that you've made uh, just now that there's there's a lot of similarities between people. And uh, the reality is, is that most people who are at a grocery store and see someone who looks different than they do or believes things that are different from them. Um, don't treat that person any different. Don't believe anything different about that person. And, and that's good. And I tend to believe that the sort of silent majority tends to always win out, right? That, that vocal minorities have their moments. Um, and, and I think that we've seen, one of those moments for the last several years in this country, but that eventually silent majorities uh, sort of reassert their dominance. Uh, and I think that the silent majority right now is the silent majority of like, okay, let's get back to the business yeah. uh, of, of all this stuff. Let's not get bogged down in these identity politics issues of the left, these identity politics issues of the right. Like let's, let's keep on keeping on. Yeah. And, and get back to what matters. And uh, I think we're headed in that direction. Uh, I just hope that we haven't devalued and, and degraded our institutions to the point that they can't yeah. um, reexist in that world. I, I agree. I think, you know, there was a there was a an appropriate uh, backlash by uh, most of mainstream society against there was there was a little period of time there where every year Christians were getting upset because of Starbucks Christmas cups. They weren't quite exactly designed the way they wanted them to be. And there was kind of an appropriate backlash to that silliness and it went away. You know, right. Uh, we need an appropriate backlash to the silliness of banning Dr. Seuss books, um, right. you know, to bring this full circle. So. Well, let's talk about gas taxes. Kentucky Republicans partnering with Democrats to uh, try to raise gas taxes. They want to go up nine cents. They want to assess fees uh, to most new vehicles as well. Um, seems as though regardless of whose uh, hands the power in Frankfurt is in, Frankfurt has never seen uh, a tax raise they don't really like. Um and, and this is a very bad time, I think, to be uh, discussing a gas tax increase, uh, especially nine cents. You're talking about adding 10 cents to about 40 cents of an increase per gallon just since um, President Biden took office. 
Um, that is a direct result. I don't care what anybody says. It's a direct result of shutting down the Keystone Pipeline and ending um, oil drilling leases on federal land. This is built into this as, as well as much higher prices of gas coming down the road. It's terrible timing, it seems. Yeah, so uh, I think there's there's two things there, right? Um, not only from a, a, a gas question, right? But now is not the right time to make things more expensive as a matter of government policy, period, <laughs> right, right? Right, We Hello. We are coming... Th- we are coming through this period of economic downturn that isn't really reflected in the stock market and really rich people have done pretty well. And, you know, your, your multinational corporations have done pretty well, but regular folks have a lot less money in their pocket than they did uh, at this time a year ago. And so anything that makes life more expensive is um, is, this is not the time to do it. Right. And, and, Pegasus, we took that position months ago on on taxes as it related to things like income taxes, sales taxes, all that kind of stuff. But but in this way, the gas tax is similar to that. Now, I can hear my friends in the legislature on the Republican side of the aisle immediately responding to you by saying, don't you want the infrastructure that government is supposed to provide? And Kentucky's roads are in bad shape and the funding for them is stagnant and so on and so forth. Um, what's your response to that? Because that's that's the standard stock answer, and, and Republicans will frame that, you know, as infrastructure and the need to do this. And and of course, the average Kentuckian is just going to go, but look at all the other places you take money from me. Right. So th- this is, and this is this was going to be my second point anyway. But this is a classic exa- example of you've identified a problem, but you've proposed the wrong solution. Right. Right. That um, cars are getting better gas mileage than they ever have. Um, Truly electric cars are more popular than they've ever been. And so this sort of traditional gas tax formula is producing less revenue than it would have had the circumstances been the same that they were 20, 30 years ago. Right. And so, again, that's that's a problem because. Uh, especially for state governments, infrastructure is one of the essential functions of state governments, right? Like you want to be able, at, at the risk of sounding like Senator Warren for just a brief moment, you want goods to be able to get to market. And uh, yes, the business is paid for those roads, just like the rest of us. That's where I differ from Senator Warren on that analogy. Um, but the the inability to get uh, goods to market in an efficient manner uh, does hamper a state's economy. Like the again, identify the correct problem, propose the wrong solution. Yeah. And, and so one of the, the things that's important here, and one of the things that I am constantly having conversations with uh, conservative think tank leaders around the country about is that we have to be engaged in these kinds of questions, right? We cannot just say, here's the six things that we have positions and belief on. And so we're going to push these things like that's important. Right. But we have to get involved in conversations that are dominated by our friends on the left. Yeah. And the, the most obvious one to me is, is global warming and that kind of stuff. Because at some point when, when folks eventually buckle and they do something about that, if the only hands up in the room for ideas are people on the radical left, then those will be the things that become policy. And so I think it's important that conservatives, uh, conservative policy organizations, conservative legislators, um, start to think about these questions in a way that comports with fir- first principle um, and recognizes that that simply increasing taxes uh, should almost never be the solution for our side, right? Um, it feels like that burden, because I think you're right, like you talk about the electric cars, it feels like that burden should be shifted a little bit to them so that there's an equal sharing of it, right? I mean, that should be the first place you start is like, well, you got an electric car. You pay zero in gas tax, you know? Right. Um, and you also got a tax incentive to buy that car. So right. y- you have an enormous amount of uh, advantages, um, you know, in terms of uh, over the person driving the, the gas car. And I know from the from the left's position, though, then that's a manipulation thing. Well, let's falsely manipulate the markets. Let's 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 force people uh, or nudge people into that product, which they may or may not want to buy at the outset, uh, and then the market will catch up later. Which, in some ways, I mean, the Tesla's a pretty cool car, right? I mean, this right. is sort of a false created demand for it, but at the same time, um, 
I think the vast majority of Americans, given the, a check for the full price of a Tesla and the full price of, you know, a, a gas-powered car of equivalent, you know, abilities and, and sportiness, they're probably going to buy the gas-powered car uh, because we still we still can't go four or five hundred miles on a on a battery like we can go consistently on on a gas tank. Right, and and in some ways, Tesla is a a triumph of sort of this public-private uh, innovation matrix that, that has been tried so many different ways, right? Because the reality is, is like nobody wanted the Chevy Volt, right? right? And Chevy took just as much in terms of federal subsidies and those kinds of things as Tesla did and produced something that still nobody wanted. The right. credit to Tesla right. is they not only succeeded in creating that sort of truly electric car, but produce something that people actually do want to buy. Right. right? And right, so right. there's an argument that there's a role for government in those kinds of innovation type spaces. Again, I may differ from some of my friends on the left on how much and to what degree and all that kind of stuff. But, but there's certainly an argument for the role of, of government in there in, in some capacity. But again, once that happens and once that shift is made, other things have to shift to adjust to it. Right. And so the obvious policy proposal that has been floated is that you, rather than have a gas tax, you switch to a mileage tax. And so you would have to record your mileage every year. And I hate that. You were taxed. <laughs> right. Look, and that's the thing, right? That's, that's one of those things right. that, that um, whenever you're talking about the underlying situation is changing and so the tax structure has to change, um, you're going to get a lot of bad proposals before you get the one where you say, oh, okay, that makes sense. Right. And so, you know, simply raising the gas tax isn't the solution. Going purely to a mileage system probably isn't the solution. But again, these are the conversations that need to be happening rather than like, hey, let's just do this. Thing. What about a, what about an annual EV fee, an annual electric vehicle fee that takes into account, you don't, you don't, you don't, snoop on people's mileage but you say right. the average car is going to be driven twelve thousand miles uh had you driven that with fossil fuels it would have cost you x so we're going to assess an annual electric fee uh to your vehicle to be paid in order to share the burden with the gas cars that are on the highway yeah, I think that solves part of the problem, which is the purely electric problem. Right. It doesn't solve the better gas mileage problem. Right. Um, and maybe you discount it, by the way. Maybe you discount it a little bit because they paid for the electric in most cases. Right. Not all cases, right. but somebody paid for the electric to, to, to right. charge the car. But it's not near as expensive as gas. So what were you going to say? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, no, no. that That's fine. But, but yeah, I drive an, an SUV now that, again five, 10 years ago would have gotten 12 miles a yeah. gallon. Yeah. Um, but now is, is doing 20 plus miles a gallon and, and even better than that on the highway. Yeah. That's just the nature of, of innovation. Which I'm just again, curious, what do you drive? Good thing. Uh, it's a Ford Explorer. Oh, okay. Yeah. Those are nice. I had an Explorer. Yeah. I have an expedition and it's uh, six years old and it gets 12 miles a gallon. But I also, right. I also have a Benz and it's six years old. And it gets 33 miles a gallon, and I can go 600 miles on a tank. I kid you right. not. Right. Now, i got to pay right. a little bit more for premium, but other than that, it's it's cheaper to drive than my SUV. Right, absolutely. And and the the structures that were put in place were not didn't account for that change, right? right. Because in reality, um, fuel efficiency hasn't, hadn't changed dramatically until this sort of past decade. Right. Um, Okay, and but so, here's a question. Here's a question, though. I don't mean to interrupt, but I, I, you got me thinking here, and this is why I like talking to you because you always get me yeah. thinking. Why right. is it that okay? So when when prices, you, you know, when 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 the market makes adjustments, then the market has to adjust, right? So right. here's what's happened: we pushed people to make uh, cleaner burning fuel uh, cars. The cars have cleaned up about ninety nine percent of their emissions in the last twenty years. They're virtually, you know, clean now when it comes to uh, you know putting stuff into the oh. air. I'm not going to say they're perfect, but they're virtually clean. Why is it now that means that the revenue has dropped to build the roads? Why is it that the road industry has not had any major technological advances to make what they do cheaper? My my 75 inch TV in my basement, um, when when they first came out with that technology, would have been six thousand dollars. I bought it for twelve hundred bucks and I winced all the way to the bank. 
uh, actually, I'm sorry, it was closer to 2,000, but it had dropped by two thirds, right? Right. They, 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 there was a, there was nobody going to go buy a six thousand dollar TV, so they had to find a way to make it for two thousand dollars, so that idiots like me could go buy it. Why are the road companies not? finding new technologies there's got to be new technologies for making roads that are cheaper to make well they can still make their profit samsung still made all the money they were going to make from me um why is there not a pressure on that and it comes back to the fact that because that's a government check there's not a market force driving it what are your thoughts on that yeah so i, I do think you kind of answered your question but part of it is because uh we never demand that government contractors innovate Right. Right. And so there's a way to structure contracts so that um, you actually benefit financially if you keep your costs low okay. or you end up producing a better product. Right? right. And and this is part of the sort of school choice conversation that goes on and, and how um, different schools are funded different ways and, and the ability to simultaneously save money and get better results. Um, but I, I think the same thing is possible in this context, right? Can you structure um, road contracts, especially? And look, the way to do it, right, is you you would start with federal highway contracts because those right. are the biggest. Um, they're the the biggest players. They develop better, cheaper, more efficient techniques, and then those make their way to you know state road eighty eight kind right. of thing. Right. And and so I, I do think that. Um, consumers ought to demand more from their tax dollars in how efficiently or innovative uh, the companies are in spending that money, but but that's just not the case right now. And so uh, the response from conservatives to, hey, we want to raise this tax because we need more money for it, shouldn't just be no, right? That's, right. that's the position that conservatives have found themselves in too often. Hey, we want to do this thing. Nope. Yeah. Uh, hey, we want to do that thing. No. The, the response from conservatives should be, no, I don't want to do that, but what if we did this, right? We, we need to articulate how what we believe about human nature and about government and government's responsibility to uh, citizens and uh, its size relative to those citizens can actually make life better for people. Yeah. And one of those ways is to try to interject some of those free market principles of innovation and uh, and competition and um, and efficiency into the way that we contract, not just with road contractors, but other elements of government services. Yeah, it's just hard to get Frankfurt or any legislature, whether it's Frankfurt or Washington, D.C., to think outside the box like that. When you're talking about structuring incentives for those corporations to actually produce a better product, at a lower price for the taxpayer, it becomes easy to collect the money that though you know that that you're going to get donated to you by big interests on big issues like this, and just raise the tax. That just becomes the easy way out for legislators, and then they go back to their constituents and say, "Well, we had to do it because you didn't want potholes." Well, maybe there's a maybe there's a type of concrete out there that doesn't pothole every time Kentucky goes through its crazy temperature swings in the winter to the summer. You know, maybe right. maybe there's a technology out there where we could put in place that that could charge electric cars as they're driving down the road. I don't know. Uh, but having that conversation is a little more difficult, I think, than just going, here, nine cents a gallon. Everybody suck it up, <laughs> you know, and we, we still won't get the roads that we want. You know, you know, we right. won't. you know, right. I, I do think it's certainly easier to do one versus the other. Uh but that's one of the things about um, uh, about citizens engaging with their government and what we demand of government, right? right, right. Uh, you and I both have a lot of libertarian friends who every time government does something incompetently will very quickly point out how incompetently government did that thing. Right. And look, there's a lot of truth in that, and there's a lot of things, a very long list of things that government does not do well. But – if that leads to this sort of defeatist attitude of like, well, of course government didn't do it well because uh, government can't do anything right. Right. Then uh, we're going to be as taxpayers and as citizens who depend on some of these government services uh, on the short end of that stick. Yeah. When we say, Hey, we demand a certain base level of service from you, law enforcement, the courts, 
uh, infrastructure, uh, an education system, those kinds of things. We don't need you doing all this other stuff, but you are the best suited entity to provide a number of these things. Right. Do that well. Right. Right. Um, we, we have this sort of like internal slogan at Pegasus about fixing the fundamentals Mm -hmm. that what we essentially believe in as a policy organization is fixing the fundamentals. We don't need government getting into a bunch of places that it doesn't need to be, but we do desperately need government doing what government needs to do well. Right. Um, and that is things like policing, education, infrastructure, uh, those kinds of questions, uh, because government does have a role and responsibility in public life. Uh, again, my view of it is smaller than many of my friends on the left, yeah. but even I have, have, there are very specific things that if government doesn't do well, then the rest of it breaks down too. Yeah. Um, the, the free market system is wonderful. Uh, but if you've got 173 homicides in your major city every year, uh, not a whole lot of people are going to move in to take even good paying jobs there. Yeah. That's a good point. I, 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 you are correct that there are some cases in which government can do things well. I happen to live in a city, Colorado Springs, which I think is the best managed city that I've ever lived in. Um, you know, there, there's there's a number of things that I that I can point to very quickly. Uh, for instance, our policing is stellar. It's absolutely stellar. They do everything they can to uh, try to be, have a great relationship with the community. But when it came to the violence that was breaking out this summer, they weren't having any of it. And, right. and they responded very quickly to the community's outcry against it. You know, we don't want that kind of violence in the city. Now, this, the, the city was very accommodating to, to peaceful protesters. And the message right. that they wanted to get out got out. And so we all felt, you know, that, that everyone feels good about that. And our infrastructure is stellar. So there are places, by the way, we have a Republican mayor, so I'm just going to say that. But, but <laughs> there are places where where there are examples where the government runs correctly that, you know, I feel good about my tax dollars, even if they're slightly higher than they were in Kentucky. When I'm driving on good roads, when I have well-lighted streets, when I know the police are three minutes away instead of 12 minutes away and uh, you know, that kind of thing. So, so there are, but, but if you notice those things are all centered around infrastructure, as you pointed out, as opposed to the government chasing utopia, which is what right. happens a lot of times when when leftists get their way, you know, they chase right. utopia and that and then nobody gets anything that they want, right? Cuz that utopia right. can't be found. So the poor stay poor and get poorer, uh the rich right. get richer and the problems never get solved and we're still destroying our suspensions with potholes. Right. Yeah. Well, and and that's why I say that the impulse of a conservative should almost never be to raise taxes, but but I did not say never, right? right? Yeah. If if a situation evolves to a point where additional revenue is truly needed and government says like, look, we went through these processes and we, we cut all the fat that, that we had and we've done this kind of thing. And it turns out we actually still need X more dollars to accomplish this thing. Right. And it will mean that police response times go from 12 minutes to four minutes, or it will mean that we go from having to do, uh, $10 million in road repair every year to $10 million in road repair every 10 years kind of thing, then, then that's an acceptable thing for a conservative to then say, okay, yeah. you know, um, that's all right. Again, when you're talking about the foundational elements of government, the essential functions of government that we believe government has the competitive advantage in over private sector actors, it's okay to, to ultimately conclude that but there's a long process that happens before that. And, and the burden is on government to demonstrate that that additional revenue is needed. It's not on the citizen or taxpayer to prove that that additional revenue is not needed. Yeah, fully agree. All right. I want to talk about another thing here. One of the things I love about the Pegasus Institute is that you tackle policy of all types. And um, despite our opening conversation about the ridiculousness of cancel culture, you and I share a common bond in that we both believe that there is such a thing as social justice and that social justice needs to happen. There are alienated and marginalized people. There are people who uh, deserve a second chance. There are people who deserve um, a little help and empowerment. Um, This is not to say that we are in any way, shape, or form in favor of large, big government programs, but there are ways that our tax dollars can be spent better to uh, make sure that that 
that everyone has a chance. You know what I mean? And one of the one of the ideas that you guys are pushing for, there's two things on your website that I really am impressed that you guys have gotten behind. One is eliminating the felony um, uh, exclusion for people getting a, a Keys scholarship. Um, I fully believe in second chances and the best way to get someone who has maybe had a misstep in the past, so long as it wasn't a horribly violent crime and they've proven an attempt to make restitution in some way, that a best shot at second chance is education and then a shot at being able to become a productive citizen. You guys have gotten behind that effort and I, I, I applaud that. Yeah. Uh, so I, I actually say this all the time when I'm on panels and we'll get questions about second chances. I always say, I do not believe in second chances and then pause for a moment because you get these looks like he doesn't believe in second chances. What is he about to say? And I say, I don't believe in second chances, but I believe in redemption. Mm. Um, and I say that because, um, a lot of people don't need a second chance. They actually need a fifth, sixth, seventh, or eighth chance. Great point. You know, they've, They've blown their second chance eight chances ago. Um, <laughs> like a cat with nine lives. I, right. But I also believe that you don't get another chance just because. Right. Right. Agreed. And so if you demonstrate that you want to get your life together, then I and and the government, society, however you want to put it, ought to come alongside you and say, we're going to help you invest in yourself. Yeah. And, and so for folks who have felony convictions because they've made a mistake in the past and frankly have even done something that, uh, you or I would find reprehensible, but it was significantly in the past, Mm -hmm. um, they ought to have the opportunity to better their lives if they are making efforts to better their lives. Right. And so, um, I think the, the felony prohibition as it currently is for the key scholarship is an overly broad way to address uh, a problem that that I actually don't think is there. I think, look, the majority of people who um, are career criminals and uh, will continue to do bad things uh, aren't particularly interested in pursuing key scholarships, aren't particularly interested in acquiring like the GPAs necessary and things like that to, to maintain that scholarship. Yeah. But for the, the mother of two, who's got a felony drug conviction from when she was 19 and she's now 36 Yeah, who wants to go back to school. Um, Kentucky is a state that desperately needs more people with bachelor's degrees. And I, I know that this is this big conversation on the right, right? Is there too much of an emphasis on a college education? Uh, should we be pushing more people into the trades, all those kinds of things? The reality is, is that, that no matter how you, you cut it, Kentucky specifically is a state that could use more people who have achieved a bachelor's degree. Yeah. Uh, we have lots of communities where people would benefit from additional college graduates and the skills that come with a college education. And so uh, it's sort of having your cake and eat it too in that front, that it is this uh, redemptive process for folks who are trying to turn their lives around. And we have a real need for folks uh, with with bachelor's degrees. I fully agree with that, and, and I, I, I think it's great that you guys are um, pushing that. And another uh, project that you guys are working on uh, is the idea of uh, dignity for women who find themselves incarcerated while pregnant. It yep. does happen. Um, for whatever reason, in Kentucky, we have a really growing female prison population. I, I think it has to do with probably our over uh, propensity to incarcerate people for you know, nonviolent and, and sometimes petty crimes. Uh, but nonetheless, some women find themselves incarcerated while pregnant. It's, it's almost hard to believe that we have to have this conversation about making sure they have access to necessary resources to help, help them have a safe and healthy pregnancy and, and bring that life, uh, into, into being here in our society. Yeah. So, um, one in four Kentucky women entering the criminal justice system is either pregnant or has a child under one. Mm. Um, so a, a substantial portion of our women who find themselves, uh, as defendants, as inmates, um, are, are pregnant or have just recently had a child. And this is an outgrowth of some work that we did in 2018. This sort of builds on that work. And, and as a conservative, I believe two things fundamentally about human nature. The first is that we are imperfect, flawed, and prone to do really bad things. 
And so because of that, we need things like police, courts, prisons, et cetera. The other thing that I believe uh, about human nature is that uh, we are created in a divine image. Um, and you can you can make that secular and say that there is a, a so there are fundamental human rights that are um, indicative of being human. And so what that means to me is even if you do something particularly bad uh, and even if you do something that, uh, that, again, you or I would find truly reprehensible, there is a minimum level of human dignity with which the system ought to treat you. Right. And so um, in the case of pregnant women, that is access to things like adequate nutrition, uh, not shackling them d- during labor and delivery. And those are things that we handled last time. And so this time around, it's about um, postpartum care. It's about ensuring that there is an opportunity for reunification with mom and child, should that be the desire uh, down the line, and that mom get equipped to, to do that. Um, and, and the part that I, I truly care about uh, deeply is the elimination of the use of solitary confinement for uh, pregnant female inmates. Um, short of executions, mm-hmm. uh, putting a prisoner in solitary confinement is the way that the state can most deprive the individual of liberty. Right. Right. Um, executions, obviously very, very permanent. Um, that that's the, the, the deprivation of life is, is the top of that pyramid, but putting a prisoner in solitary confinement is the sort of second highest deprivation of Liberty. The state can impose upon an individual. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that that per se means we shouldn't do it, but it does mean we ought to scrutinize the crap out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, there are, there are very few policy issues that are truly one-sided in academic literature. And what I mean by that is that there are very few things like you can find research projects on why taxes should be higher, why taxes should be lower, mm-hmm. why you need more police, why you need less police. Uh, virtually everyone who has looked at the question of solitary confinement has found that um, it has really negative mental health impacts on those who spend significant amounts of time in solitary confinement and that those are exacerbated in pregnant women because uh, hormone imbalances make them more susceptible to things like depression and anxiety. And so to me, go ahead. No, I was was just going to say it should be reserved for the worst of the worst offenders who we know are never going to come out of prison. The Ted Kaczynski's of the world um, in the, in the, in the top level maximum, you know, maximum security where you're just trying to keep them from, infiltrating the minds of other prisoners because they just right. can't be reformed. Other than that, it probably right. shouldn't be used very often other than maybe as a, a temporary punishment from time to time when things go wrong. Right. As a, as an administrative administrative uh, tool for general populations, when there's a fight or things right. like that, again, it, it makes sense uh, in, in short instances, but particular to pregnant women, you're talking about not only an increased likelihood of the negative effects, but also, just a greater need for medical attention right. uh, because of the the medical condition of pregnancy, right? And so uh, there's a portion of the bill that, that deals with that and would um, eliminate that in, in virtually all circumstances. I feel like, um, I feel so, like a, if you want to talk about recidivism versus reform and redemption, uh, my wife and I don't have children, but and that's by choice, but I can tell you that the just from watching my friends as as they've had children and knowing people that have had children the, the quickest way to mature somebody up is for them to have a child so right if you want somebody to reform and to redeem to have redemption redemption requires something to live for you know from the christian perspective redemption is possible because christ died for us and when we are redeemed we have something to live for it changes everything and you know, there's there's nothing I don't think that could tie closer from a human perspective to redemption than having a child and having a reason to live and a reason to change and a reason to seek that redemption. So we should do everything in our power for someone who is about to have a child in the incarceration system to make sure they have a shot at at at, at figuring that out through that process. It seems that would save the taxpayers money. 
Right. Absolutely. And that's that's not only important for the mom who finds herself in the criminal justice system, but but frankly, for that child. Um, If you spend a lot of time around um, folks who work in maternity wards, they'll tell you that that first hour post-pregnancy is often referred to as the golden hour. It's when mom and baby both do um, sort of maximum amount of bonding. And as a as a total aside, one of the detriments of the time period that we're living in from a phone and social media aspect is that a lot of people spend that time taking pictures and texting family and all that. And again, uh, doing that for totally legitimate reasons. But in reality, it actually you should take that first hour, sort of put the phones away. And then after that, start to call mom and dad and, and, you know, grandma and grandpa and all that kind of stuff. But, but that time period, regardless of what is going to happen to that child, whether it goes to live with, uh, with family and some sort of kinship care, whether it's going to go into the foster system, whether the ultimate goal is, um, or whether it's going to go up for, for full adoption, like regardless of what that circumstance is, that, that early bonding time with mom is going to end up helping that kid down the line. Right. And so we're not just talking about helping mom. We're talking about actually trying to help break cycles of addiction and those kinds of things. Yeah. Fully agree. Well, I just looked at the clock and we're at an hour. So as <laughs> is, as is tend to be, it, it tends to be our habit. We get going, right. we start going and we, we keep rolling, but uh, hopefully people have enjoyed this conversation. It's covered, I think, I think three very important issues. We've talked about, um, you know, social justice here. We've talked about your wallet, and we've talked about the ridiculousness of canceling Dr. Seuss. But uh, real quick, two quick things. One, how can people help with the, uh, the the dignity and pregnancy and incarceration bill that you guys are pushing? What bill is it if somebody wants to read the text? Yep. And then how can they help you guys get that passed? Yep. So it is it is Senate Bill 84 here in Kentucky. Um, it just made its way out of the House Judiciary Committee today. It's already passed the Senate. Okay. So it's going to go to the, the full House for a vote. And so if you've got listeners in Kentucky who are uh, interested in being engaged with this issue, please reach out to your, your House members. Let them know that you support it and that they should support it, too, um, because of a tweak in uh, on the house side we anticipate it's going to have to go back through the senate again uh but we were unanimous in the senate the first time and so i anticipate a similar vote but again please reach out to your legislators let them know it's something you care about and then the other thing is that there are a, a number of wonderful nonprofits in this state like volunteers of america and others that specialize in uh detoxing and rehabilitating pregnant moms so that they can both deliver a healthy baby and then break the cycle of addiction for themselves. And so if, if you've got interest in this issue, there are organizations that you can reach out to that you can volunteer with, that you can donate clothes to all that kind of stuff. One organization uh, similar to that, that I have been proud to uh, be associated with in the past is uh, Lifehouse there in Louisville. Yep. Um, they are a fantastic organization that is absolutely changing and saving lives. And so, yeah, there's there's always a, a lot of ways to um, to be involved in these things. OK, the real quick. Also, just if po- folks say, man, I really like that Joshua Crawford guy. Uh, what's the best way to follow your work at Pegasus? Yeah. So the, the best way to, to follow my work is um, to follow Pegasus on our, on our social media. Uh, we've got a Twitter, Facebook account, Instagram. Um, that links all our stuff. Uh, I am not super involved in the social media aspect of it myself, which uh, I don't think will surprise your listeners given some <laughs> of the conversations we've had right. about social media, but all of our work is there. And our website is, is pegasuskentucky.org. That's got virtually everything you could want from us. Awesome. Can't wait for the next conversation, Josh. I appreciate you, brother. Thanks, Leland. All right. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Josh Crawford, uh, Pegasus Institute. I love that organization. You guys have heard me say it a thousand times. They're getting the work of God done, in my opinion. So big thanks to our sponsor, Louisville Cabinets and Countertops. Thank you guys so much for supporting the Disruption Zone. Uh, I've been a customer for years. I should say was a customer for years. I obviously live in Colorado now. But I'm pretty confident that the work they did in our master bathroom and in our kitchen is the reason why our house sold in less than a day. Uh, Guys, I don't talk about businesses that I don't fully believe in and that I uh, don't fully understand that they're what their mission is. And I've seen firsthand uh, Tim Montgomery and his team's work ethic 
And as you know, for those of you that have listened to me for a long time, work ethic is probably one of the most important things to me uh, in terms of who I want to do business with and who I want to work with. So you're going to be very happy with the work that they do. They've also got three designers on staff, Michelle, George, Kelly. They're all standing by at the showroom at 6200 Hit Lane in Louisville to help you uh, to choose the right design for your home and your lifestyle. And if you're a do-it-yourselfer or a contractor, they also have really high-quality uh, super affordable in-stock cabinets that are absolutely beautiful. And you can see them on the website at louisvillecabinetsandcountertops.com or just give them a call, 502-930-3304. We appreciate them so much for supporting this program. And I would love it if you'd call them and just say, thanks for supporting uh, you know, the, the, the disruption zone. And as soon as we have a project, we're going to come see you. you know, just let them know that you appreciate them uh, supporting us. Um, Thanks to JP Web Design as well as Dynamics Audio Productions in Lexington, Kentucky for their help. And to my good-for-nothing, lazy co-executive producer and co-host Cameron Mills. I love you, buddy. And to you, the thousands of listeners who download this podcast every week. Share it with your friends. It's Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and um, iHeartRadio's app. Please give us a great review. Uh, when you get five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular, they promote those podcasts to more people. So that would be super helpful if you could give us a five-star review there. And uh, I just appreciate all of you for downloading. You can follow me on Instagram at Greatly Londo and at The Disruption Zone. And on Twitter, it's at Leland Show and at Zone Disruption. Thank you for listening to The Disruption Zone.